Hello, everyone. Good morning. Wow, great stuff. Um, there's two ways to really wind up Martin, and uh, I just want to start by um, explaining those. Firstly, it's that Martin was obviously talking about Kevin Lee is in Wales. Everyone thinks Martin is from Wales because he is married to the most Welsh person imaginable, Kerry. He's actually from the northeast, so the other way to wind him up is to call him a Geordie, uh, when actually you're a, officially a smoggy. A smoggy. So, uh, so there you go. Great. I'll, uh, next time I speak, I'll talk about how to wind up another member of the staff team. So uh, we'll go from there. Um, my name's Ben. I lead Grace Church. It is such a, a joy to be with you today. Um, and actually, this is the last time that I'm going to be speaking before uh, myself and my wife, we go on sabbatical. Um, so we're going to spend three months uh, praying, uh, studying, and uh, having some time together. We've got a family road trip planned, so if there's anything specific that you'd uh, want to pray for us about, it's that our ancient car manages to, move, it manages to go about 2,000 miles and doesn't get stuck somewhere. So uh, you can pray for that. But we're, um, we're going to be back mid-September. We're heading off after together weekend. Uh, but today, the passage we're looking at is uh, Matthew 14, and uh, we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000. Now, my youngest daughter, Jasmine, she covered this in kids' work last week. And uh, kids' work, is, uh, our kids are really, really well taught up there. It's a, it's a joy to hear. And when she heard that I was also doing the feeding of the 5,000, she said, look, Dad, I'm really happy to help you out. I'm happy to help uh, plan the preach for you. But if you use any of my ideas... I want a credit. <laughs> there we go. Um, the challenge with a passage like this is that it is so well known to so many of us. Um, it's, it's a passage that if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you would have covered over and over again. And in part, it's because it's one of only three miracles that is in all four of the Gospels. Um, the other two miracles are the transfiguration. So that's when Jesus radiated the glory of God up a mountain and the resurrection. All of these miracles point to Christ's divinity, by the way. But with the feeding of the 5,000, it's something that, because we've heard it so many times, it kind of gets relegated or can do to this is the children's Bible story version. And so it, it lacks any potency in our lives today. But as I spent time preparing for this message, and I promise you, I haven't nicked one of Jasmine's ideas. Uh, maybe I should have done. You can feed back, that back to me at the end. Um, I've been really impacted on how the relationship between Jesus and his disciples can actually be beautifully applied to us now. The way in which Jesus gets us involved in building his kingdom and the excitement and the challenge of following him, that's in this passage. Uh, verse by verse by verse. But before we go there, let's start off by looking at the grisly few verses that led up to uh, the feeding of the 5,000. So this involves an out-of-control party culminating in someone's head being chopped off and put on a platter. Got your attention now, haven't I? Goodness me. We're, by the way, we're going to be um, looking through the whole of or most of Matthew 14. So follow along with me in your Bibles. The verses will also come up here. Now, side point on this head chopping off business. I was chatting to someone at our welcome event uh, last week. And um, <laughs> no, it didn't, it didn't go there. <laughs> I, I better speed up the, the anecdote. Um, essentially, he's a surgeon and he's in his fourth year. But in his first year, 
um, as part of his surgeon cohort, they ended up going to a morgue and um, someone plonked a head, I'm guessing out of a freezer, and put it on the morgue table. And I suppose as an initiation, see how they would respond in that moment. I don't know how you would respond, but I would essentially respond by turning white and keeling over. So um, yeah, not the job for me. Okay, let's read from Matthew 14, verse 1. Okay, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So up until this point, Jesus' fame had flown under the radar of the Roman authorities. So the Jews had already heard Jesus' teaching, and they, um, they hated it. Um, but um, up until this point, um, the Romans hadn't. So this is where the Romans started to take note. And it was this nasty piece of work called Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch is simply his official title. He first got wind of what Jesus was up to. Um, so Herod heard what he was doing, and he came up with this strange theory that um, Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then there's actually this flashback moment to explain uh, how John the Baptist died. So if this was a movie, you would have across the screen, you know, sometime earlier, or the screen would fade into black and then would, uh, would come back up and the colors would look slightly different or be in soft focus. Famous or best... Flashback movie, what would you go for? I'd go, usual suspects. I know Forrest Gump is up there. My wife says the notebook. You can discuss that over lunch. Um, but anyway, this, this flashback, the important one that we're covering now, Ben, this skips back to a recent party. And firstly, we read that John the Baptist, he's in prison for essentially being critical about Herod and his relationship uh, choice. He stole his brother's wife. And so John the Baptist felt that leaders should, be, um, should live to a, a decent moral standard. So he says as much to Herod. And what happened to him was what would happen if you criticize a leader in that culture, in that day, he was thrown into prison. So let's read from verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, danced before the company and pleased Herod. So it's clear that this wasn't some sort of innocent river dance or some classy bit of ballet. There was something sort of sexual and messed up to this dance. But what it did is it resulted in, let's read verse 7, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, and remember, her mother is Herod's brother's wife, so he's, she's not happy with John the Baptist. Um, she says, give me the heads of John the Baptist here on a platter. Verse 9, and the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Essentially, because of pride, because of him not wanting to, to lose face, Let's read what he did. Verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. And then later on, so flashback over and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. Money, sex, power, pride. It's a toxic mix that in essence led to the death of an innocent man. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Does that, does that resonate with our culture in any way at all? Yeah, of course it does. 
we see this worked out. We see this played out in the news day by day by day. People in the Ukraine, they're dying over a person's pride and a person's arrogance. Putin's pursuit of control and power means the innocent die. And history is littered with almost countless examples of this sort of thing happening. From unhealthy, controlling work cultures, to narcissistic leaders, to dictators killing thousands for their self-focused needs, their self-focused ends, And the reason why this is everywhere is because ultimately, this is what happens when we get our own way. This is what the kingdom of this world looks like. The the weak and the abused are marginalized because that's what's needed in order for an elite or an individual to gain money and power and control. It was like that then, and it's, it's like that now. We, you can read a story like this and think, oh, we're, we're a lot more civilized. I don't think we are any more civilized. Our parties might look a bit different, though. So right away, we see a clear picture of what the kingdom of this world looks like, and later, we'll see it beautifully compared and contrasted to the characteristics of the kingdom of God. Okay, so flashback over. We're back in the present. We're in this story in verse 13, and it says this. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place to be by himself. Hear hear those words in that sentence. He withdrew to a desolate place to be by himself. Tim Mackey of Bible Project fame, he says, Jesus, he says, Matthew rather, is trying to emphasize that Jesus is wanting some alone time. Why? Well, because John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. They're related, they're friends. Actually, Jesus' ministry started when uh, John the Baptist baptized him and prayed for him. So this was a dear friend, a family member that Jesus lost. So he wanted some time to grieve and to process and to pray. He also didn't want to put his disciples in danger Oh, now that he was in the crosshairs of this Roman uh, kind, of, uh, kind of king, um, this paranoid, power-hungry individual. Verse 13, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And so when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. So Jesus is grieving. What uh, commentators think happened, happened is in the Sea of Galilee uh, to the northwest, I'll, do it this, I'll try and do it this way. I'll probably confuse myself. Northwest, as you're looking, um, there's a lot of towns and villages, and then Sea of Galilee, and then in the northeast, uh, right at the corner, there's, um, there's desolation, and there's, there's a quiet place. So Jesus would have gone across the Sea of Galilee, and uh, the people from the towns and the villages were, just went over the top and uh, met him there. So this is, imagine you're Jesus, and you see these people. How, how did he respond And before we think about how we would respond, verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. He had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Jesus did what he always does. He loved them. He moved towards these people with compassion. He showed them such great love, even though he was in the midst of facing his own loss. He wasn't too busy 
or too distant to care. He didn't see the crowds as some sort of inconvenience. He responded with compassion. He laid down his agenda to meet the needs of others. He saw a hurting crowd and he moved towards them, and he prayed for them, and he healed their sick. No wonder the disciples followed this man. He was such a a guy of integrity and love and care and power. Verse 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, Look, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and to buy food for themselves. Commentators reflect that this is a genuinely thoughtful comment for the disciples to make. They didn't want these people to stay too late, uh, to stay till it's dark and then to have trouble, a dangerous journey back to their own towns and villages. There was no food to speak of. So they were trying to care for people. And actually, this is an example of the disciples learning something from Jesus. The disciples often get a a bad rep, but actually, um, this shows that they started to change. They'd spent about a year and a half with Jesus by this point. And um, psychologists say we become like the people that we spend time with. They were starting to become a little bit more like Jesus. Jesus. They'd seen Jesus caring for people. They'd seen him showing compassion. And they tried to respond in a loving and caring way. And, and Jesus' response is actually, he agrees with at least half of what they're saying. He, he says, yes, look, these people do need food. That's a great idea, disciples. Verse 16, so Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And, what, what do you mean? You give them something to, something to me, eat. Imagine if you were the disciples then. How would you respond in that moment? What are you on about, Jesus? You know, this is a, this is a desolate place. How, how's that going to happen? There's no uh, food for miles. There's no food delivery app. What you're asking is impossible. The plan was for us to be by ourselves, to grieve and to process and to plan out our next steps. So believe it or not, I haven't made a packed lunch for 5,000 people, and that's just the men, the women and the children. It's more like 10,000 people just in case this situation was to arise. Jesus, what are you on about? Let's, um, let's pause this story just for a minute. Whenever you uh, read a miracle in the Bible... Um, it's, it's powerful just to put yourself in, in the context and to imagine you were there. But the miracles in the Bible are also there because they have something that can be applied to our lives in the here and now. There's an eternal element to, to these miracles. There's an eternal perspective. So a good question to ask is, what does God want to show you, me? What does God want to show us through this miracle? Well, firstly, I believe that God wants to show us how relationship with him works. Even though this uh, story is called the feeding of the 5,000, actually, commentators highlight that the majority of it is about the conversation between his disciples and Jesus himself. So through this miracle, we see how Jesus operates with his followers We see how how he functions with his disciples in this story. And so if you're a Christian here today, we're disciples, we're followers of him. So you can apply that to yourself. 
Let's read the rest of the story, and we'll look at that dynamic between Jesus and his followers. So getting back to the story, maybe um, the disciples knew that sarcasm is the lowest form of wit, and so they didn't go down that route with Jesus. Let's see how they responded. It says in verse 17, this is a a better response. It says, look, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Now, um, a Jewish loaf uh, apparently feeds three people. So they had food for 15 people. They had food, they had a pack up for themselves. That's essentially what they preferred for as they went to be in the wilderness. That's all they had. And Jesus, verse 18, and he says, perfect. He says, bring it here to me. So scratching their heads, they trusted Jesus and they gave him all the supplies that they had. All they had, they handed over. So it is a brave thing to do in the wilderness with no other sustenance for miles around. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. This is verse 19. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and he gave it to the disciples. And then the disciples gave them to the crowds. So keep imagining yourself in this story, in this scenario. He broke bread, he gave it to the disciples, and the disciples fed the crowds. So they brought all that they had into the situation. It wasn't very much, it was five loaves and two fish. He blessed it, and he used it to feed people and to glorify by himself. So in this miracle, what you see is the disciples faithfully going to the first group of people with this broken bread and fish, different groups of people sitting on the ground. And they they went over to them and they handed out what they had. And then they ran out and they went back to Jesus. I imagine if I was there thinking, well, that was short-lived. And then you go back to Jesus and miraculously, he's got more for you. So you take that again and you go to the second group and you hand it out and you run out and then you come back again And yet again, Jesus has more for you. And the process repeats itself and repeats itself as to about 10,000 people get fed. And because this miracle has application to us in our lives right now, we can also apply this to how we should operate, how we walk, how we follow Jesus. That's how we're called to live. We're called to bring him what we have the measly stuff that we have. We're called to trust him in it, give it over to him. Our talents, our finances, our time. And then he takes those things. He breaks them for us. He gives them back to us for his glory. And we're to use it to to meet people's needs. We're to use it to proclaim the gospel. We're to use it to to feed people, to, to look after people. We, we hand out what we have as we've been commissioned to do and we come back to Jesus who miraculously gives us another basket to go again and again and again. Verse 20, and they all ate and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. As we operate in this way, There's more than enough to go around. Why? 
because God is such a generous God. We've sung about him this morning. We've sung about how he meets our every needs. He takes our little and he feeds thousands. He gives us our daily bread day by day by day. As we walk and trust in him, as we keep on going back to Jesus, he keeps on providing. American pastor uh, John Piper, he describes it like this. He says, you join Jesus in his ministry and there will always be just enough for you. You're not going to get rich here. We get one basket, just enough, a personal invitation to you from Jesus Christ. You join him in his cause and he looks at you as an individual. He says, I've got a basket for you. I know what you need. There will be a basket for you tonight and tomorrow and the day after and the next day. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what we're called to do. As you spend time with him, as you spend time with Jesus, you become a little bit more like him day by day. You see the world as Jesus does. You see the need and the pain. You see a world full of hurting people. And then you respond and you're like, Jesus, help these people. Look, I want to, we want to see transformation here. We want to see breakthrough here. We want to see these people fed here. And Jesus turns to you and he says, that's a great idea. Why don't you feed them? And so feeling inadequate, you then say to Jesus, look, I don't have anything. I have heart. All I've got is, is these tiny little things. I'm not rich. I'm not clever. I'm bumbling along. I'm, I'm sort of going through the ups and the downs of life myself. And Jesus says, perfect. And then he takes it. And then he miraculously turns it into something that does transform and does change a hurting world. That is the Christian walk. For those who were here last week, that's what we heard with Medea's story. Didn't we? Her setting up that charity to support those in the Congo who are, um, who are on the autistic spectrum. Um, that's what we do here day by day, week by week with Compassion Ministries. And that's exactly what happens when you make space in your life to hear from Jesus and you respond. That's what happens when we proclaim Jesus in the workplace or when we uh, step out in faith, when we talk to, to someone who might be on their, on their own, when we, um, when we are available, when we, instead of just walking straight by people. And in doing so, our lives become a little bit more like those first century disciples that we're reading about. And the huge encouragement for us is that in spite of the, the foibles and the messes and the, the, the challenges that they faced, the, their fears and failings, as they responded in this way, over time, they changed and transformed the world forever. That's what happens. That's what happens when we, when we work um, out of this, when we work like this. This is what relationship with Jesus looks like. Second point is, look, as we read this passage, what shared language do you see in this, in this passage compared with other passages? What other miracles do you get thinking about? Where else do you see uh, Jesus break bread in this way? Well, it's in the Last Supper, isn't it? 
there is such a, a clear line drawn between this passage and the Last Supper. Matthew 26 says, he took bread, he broke it. This is my body broken for you. This is the pivotal point in history that changed absolutely everything for us, for the world. And in the Gospel of John's telling of the same story, of the feeding of the 5,000 story, Jesus expands a little bit on it. And he says this in John 6, verse 35. says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. As wonderful as this miracle is, even with the 12 baskets left over, those people will still be hungry again. They're not infinitely cured of physical hunger. He met their, he met their needs right there. So uh, Jesus uh, isn't just about uh, meeting people's physical needs in that moment. Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. He's the sustainer. He's the one who eternally satisfies. So not only did he provide bread for people in the wilderness, it's a sign that if you put your trust in him, he will satisfy you forever. If you put your trust in him, he'll satisfy you forever. John Piper says, Jesus does not come into the world mainly to give bread, but to be bread. God does not come into the world mainly to give bread, but to be bread. Because he's caring and compassionate, he will give bread. He will meet our physical needs. He, he will meet us there because he loves us. But that's not the main reason he came. He did not come primarily to be useful, but he came to be precious. If you were part of the crowd as this miracle unfolded, when you got back and someone asked you, you know, what were you up to today? You could easily have said, oh, I was fed for free. I had this incredible meal provided in the wilderness for free. You could fit, say, on the miracle itself, totally forgetting the person who provided that miracle in the first place. And this passage encourages us not just to look at the physical bread, but to look at the bread of eternal life, to look to Jesus. Jesus, as he physically broke the bread, it's a sign that his body was broken on a cross. Why? Because, believe it or not, look around. He loves and he cares for each of us in the room here. He loves and he cares so much. And our sin and our mess and our shame was getting in the way of that. And so he died on the cross so we eternally may have life. And our eternity starts the moment that we give our lives to Jesus. We were dead in our sin. We were starving in the wilderness. And Jesus made a way by his own body being broken as the bread of life so that we might live. I don't, I'm going to pause, pause now. I'd love to pray for us, actually, just as I'm sort of talking this out. Just get a sense that, um, like, just like this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, it's like, okay, we've been there, we've done it, we've heard it so many times. I think in our own way, we can actually feel something similar about Jesus on the cross. And by, by that, I mean, like, we acknowledge it, we thank God for it, but then there's a sense in which we're like, okay, now I just want to live my own life. I just want to carry on. Thank you, Lord. I've got this from here. So I just, I'm just going to pause and pray in a moment. Lord, 
I thank you for the reality that you made a way for us to be eternally secure through your cross. Lord, it is the most amazing miracle. And Lord, I pray in the room right now, help us uh, not to fixate on kind of what you can do. Help us to fixate on who you are. You are the glorious King of Kings. We love you. And we just, I just want us to lift our eyes to you again. We adore you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, my final point is this. This passage shows us what the kingdom of God looks like. There is this incredible juxtaposition between uh, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Herod, essentially, and the kingdom of Jesus. In the kingdom of God, the needy are cared for. There's plenty for all. This is so different from Herod's kingdom where pride and power rule, ultimately leading to the innocent dying, where the weak weak are crushed and they're abused on a whim because of a drunken promise in a moment. That's what the kingdom of this world ultimately ends up looking like. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, has a mission statement which says, the first will be last. Matthew 20, the passage that JP preached a couple of weeks ago, the vineyard passage, it laid some of these principles out. And verse 28 in Matthew 20 says, Look, the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served rather, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like, how countercultural is this? The King of Kings, the one who reigns on high. He laid down his life as a ransom for many. This means that the weak are fed and they're not destroyed, where there's freedom and hope, not coercion and control. We're ruled, our kingdom, the kingdom of God, which you are part of if you come to faith in Jesus, is ruled by a king, the servant king who laid down his life for you, who made a way for you. And it means that the kingdom of God is the opposite from the kingdom of this world. And we are eternally thankful for that. Okay, so we're going to spend the time that we have left um, by breaking bread together. Could we have the band? I don't know how I managed to lose. Oh, it's right there. Just cheers, mate. Okay, now this is for anyone who's a Christian. I'll leave this here, actually. Thanks, mate. Um, this is for anyone who's a, a Christian with breaking bread. If um, you're, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you've heard something of the message today and something has, has resonated, it's either during worship or during this message, then if you put your trust in Jesus, you can simply join us in this. If not, though, just relax. It's so great to have you here with us today. Enjoy the music that's being played. And what we're going to do is we're going to collect the bread and the, the juice, and then we're going to respond corporately together. So there's a station behind you there. There's one here, one there. If you go and collect things, and then we'll go from there.